0: I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, a podcast about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. Open source software is behind a lot of systems we interact with. One example is WordPress, a system that powers over 30% of the internet. In this episode, Helen Ho Sandi, explained what WordPress is and how it's used to create websites. We also talked about the characteristics of open source projects and the best practices. Helen is lead developer at WordPress and director of open source initiatives at 10Up. Helen, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the show, and especially because when I was researching for this interview, I saw that you have a background in music, you're a professional musician, so I'm really curious about what's it been like to work in technology, do programming, coming from such a strong musical background.
1: Yeah, so I've actually given talks about this before, there are a lot of parts to it, I guess. One of the big things that I like to talk about is how the skills have really directly translated both to programming and to working in open source. So I think the number one thing that I think, you know, programmers in particular, developers really share with musicians is this pursuit of, I call it lifetime like lifelong learning, right? Where there's no such thing as being done with learning <laughs> what uh, your craft, right? So, with, with music, there's always like a new piece to learn. Always. There's just so much music that you could learn. But there's always new music, new musical partners uh, to work with, new venues, new lots of different factors, right? And the same thing goes for programming, right? Or development in general is that there's always like some new language or some new technique, some new library framework to learn and so you really have to be self-driven to get that done, right? So like as a musician, nobody's sitting there telling you how to practice, right? Like maybe when you're a little kid And just getting started, you might have like a parent or somebody else helping you understand how to practice. But as you grow, you really have to drive that on your own. And I think that's a huge part of being in web development in particular, I think, is that you just, there's just just always something and you have to be self-driven to follow along with what's new and to pick it up and figure out, you know, what learning style works for you and what doesn't. So that's a big one.
0: One thing I liked a lot from the talk was you begin by playing a piece on the piano and then you start giving the talk and there was a moment where you show the music on the screen and you start explaining these are the symbols and there's different languages like the text might be in German or Italian and how you compare that with code later on. So that's when it really clicked for me. It's very similar, and you learn a new language, a new way of writing things, and essentially that is translated into an interpretation, right? Yep,
1: completely. Yeah. I mean, a musical score, I think for people who have not studied much music, a musical score looks like a bunch of dots and lines and words in a bunch of languages. You know, a lot of it's in Italian, but you never know. And that's kind of the same with web development, it's sort programming in general, it's that you have this language in front of you, that may or may not look familiar, but you need to be able to translate that not just into what it literally says, right, but like what it's going to do, coming up next, how it's going to affect other components, right, and to be able to trace like the execution through time. Right. So it's not just like I'm reading a book and, you know, here's the word and here's the next word, but rather like I have to read through this thing and I have to understand this is going to happen at this moment and that's going to lead to there and that's going to lead over there. And that's a very similar skill as well to be able to read that way.
0: I want to talk now more about WordPress and open source development. WordPress is a open source content management system, and it's been around since 2003 for context, it allows people to quickly create websites and blogs. You're a lead developer at WordPress. Can you talk about the impact and the importance of this system?
1: Yeah. Wow. WordPress. So yeah, I've been working with WordPress in some capacity for, uh, gosh, 11 years, maybe longer. I've been tinkering with WordPress, like using it as a user and then playing with the PHP side of things uh, since 2008. So a long time, and it's come a really long way. And I think, you know, it, it is a, essentially like a mission-driven project, right? It, it very much believes in, well, we say, democratizing publishing, right? So, so bringing this ability to have a voice on the web to any number of people, right, to everybody, right, is the goal. And, you know, the percentage is not the goal itself, but rather it's an indicator of, you know, whether we're accomplishing that, whether we're providing people with the tools that they need. We recently passed 40% of the internet, as the lazy way to put it. I think the the more precise way to put it is we're more than 40% of the top 10 million sites as tracked by... I don't remember what it's called. Alexa, maybe. And you can find those stats on W3 Techs. So that's just been really humbling for me over the last, you know, 10 years is to watch that percentage grow from, I don't know, like 15 or something all the way up to 40. And to know that that's the kind of impact that you can have, right? And and you think about, you know, sometimes the changes that we make, they can feel really small. But if you think about that, like multiplied over 40% of the Freaking internet, right? It's just like, wow, it's that's a huge impact. I might just make a change to like a color of a border, but that impact that it might have, you know, is, is really huge. And that's really just been an amazing experience to have.
0: Fun fact, this podcast is powered by WordPress Yay. website and pretty much everything. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. <laughs> One thing that I also want to highlight is a lot of the people using WordPress are non-technical, but there's also developers like me. I choose WordPress because it's very easy to use and it just gets the job done for hosting a simple website, like for the podcast. Can you talk about, as a developer, some of the challenges that you face when working on features targeted for non-technical folks
1: yeah, we have a lot of challenges. So, I, from the technical perspective, I'll start there. So, from the technical perspective, we have a couple of things. One that has maybe a lesser impact, but is you know something that I think people gloss over sometimes, are not always super knowledgeable about, which is understandable because it's complicated. But that's licensing. The WordPress project sort of infamously is uh, licensed under the GPL version two. It's a, what's called a copyleft license. And so there are, I'm not gonna try to fully describe it cause I don't want to get it wrong cause it's highly legal language, right? But it, it essentially means that the software itself and anything that derives from the software has to remain freely available. And that's a very powerful concept but sometimes it does affect, you know, like the things that we can include in WordPress because they have to be compatible with the license, you know, because of the the distribution constraints and all of that. So there are certain libraries that we are not able to use. I think famously this actually happened with React where we were experimenting with a feature and I don't remember if it was a license change or you know, a closer look at the license revealed at the time, revealed that it wasn't going to be compatible with WordPress. And I believe the outcome was that the the licensing of React changed. But that's not necessarily because of WordPress, but that was a thing that happened. And so it is in use, but that's one constraint that we have. And then another big thing that maybe is the biggest technical challenge is that we have this policy of backwards compatibility. It's not perfect, right? But... We strive very much to not break user sites through upgrades. So you could have a WordPress site that is still on version whenever automatic updates or not UI updates were introduced, but you could have a WordPress site that's on like version 3.1, right? Which is from like 2010 or something. And you could upgrade that. You could click the button in the web UI to update all the way up to 5.7 and your site should continue working. Sounds terrifying, but that's the way that it works. And that can be a really big constraint because there are some older PHP practices that we still adhere to for minimum PHP compatibility. And I think that really frustrates developers sometimes, a lot of the time, maybe. So that's a big one. And then, of course, you know, like trying to maintain compatibility with, you know, all kinds of like ex- extension points for Like plugin and theme developers, right? So we have to kind of maintain that so that a plugin doesn't stop working. Because to your non technical, non developer user, they don't see their site being broken and think, oh, yeah, you know, that plugin, that plugin must have broken. No, they see their site and they say, my site is broken, right? And that's something that we always try to keep in mind is that, you know, even though there's this whole giant ecosystem of tens upon tens of thousands of things that, you know, people working on, WordPress core itself did not write, we try our very best for that broader ecosystem experience to be, to be good for our users. And then from like the user facing standpoint, right? It is always hard to make software that feels good to the majority of people. We get bogged down a lot in, you know, decision by committee and, you know, kind (laughs) of hot button topics, right? Where you have something that, you know, Somebody who's had a lot of experience working in user-facing software is like, this is almost certainly going to be the right path. And you get a lot of people who want to debate about it or say, you know, what data do you have to back that up? And sometimes it's like, you know, you can't necessarily get hard data on how good is this feature for the majority of people, right? Because your testing audience is going to be biased because... You know, there's just there's just too many factors, and you can debate the data endlessly too, right? We're never gonna get anywhere if if we kind of get bogged down in that. So sometimes it's really hard to be like, okay, you know what? This is the person who is empowered to make this decision to say that they believe they know what the best path forward is right now, and we're just gonna have to go with that decision. Do our best to say yes. We heard the feedback from you know the developer community right? But we have to make this decision now so that we can continue moving. And I think that that's also a really hard part about the process, right? It's not even the, what is the actual UI or, or all those things, right? It's like with computers, all things are possible, whether in a good way or a bad way, you know, I don't know, but all things are possible at the computer. The really hard parts are, are the parts involving humans and, you know, how humans interact with each other and how you're making other people feel and, you know, maintaining your contributor base, right? Those are the really hard parts to me.
0: You mentioned that sometimes there is not enough data to make a decision and then it boils down to someone or a group of people making that decision. When I think of this, I remember recently WordPress was changing their layout to this block-based approach for their posts. But that process to me was, I had a choice of trying out the new layout and I could revert back and forth. So do you think things like this help alleviate the fact that maybe initially there's not data?
1: Yeah. So the block editor project, which has this like project's code name of Gutenberg, this block editor has many different things going on with it. And the first thing that happened was that it, it actually existed as a separate project and as a plugin, right? So something you could voluntarily install in WordPress for years. And so it did not ship with WordPress. It was like, you got, you got recommended, you know, in some places that you should install it, right? Lots of prompts and, you know, marketing basically for it, but it existed as a plugin. And that's a concept that we have in the WordPress, like core software development area is that uh, we have these large features and we try to, Encourage initial development to be as a plugin because there are two things. One is that if you have something that you think should be a part of the core software, then presumably it's something that's valuable on its own, right? And so by making it a plugin, you make it available to people immediately. You have your own update cycle, which can be much faster than the core software can update, and you're serving a need that you believe to be out there, right? So it can continue to exist as a plugin forever, even if You know, for whatever reason, it doesn't make it into the core software. But then also by making it a plugin, you can solicit feedback earlier, more often. You can target like certain types of users, right? And these are, again, by definition, somebody who goes and is willing to kind of install and use these plugins are going to be people who are more toward like maybe the power user end of the spectrum, Right. And so that's a big thing for us. And so the Gutenberg project existed as a plugin for a long time, and they got a lot of user testing data in person at conferences. You know, we have this huge network of WordCamps, which are like more local events. So in-person user testing at events, at meetups, and then of course, like online, you know, and then we have avenues of community feedback on all of that. And then, you know, finally, at some point, you have to say, like, this is our definition of MVP of for shipping in the core software, right? And so that happened a little over two years ago, I think. And since then, Gutenberg itself still exists as a plugin, actually, because it has further goals outside of the editor. Uh, so right now, you use it in, in the editor and, like, their periodic improvements as the core software updates. And, and it's, like, just your editor area, right? And you can elect to revert back to the previous editor, uh, as you alluded to. But if you install the Gutenberg plugin, it will bring you more frequent updates to the block editor. But also right now, part of that is expanding outside of the content editing area. And to bring this to, maybe I shouldn't frame it as bringing the blocks out to the rest of your site, but rather unifying the entire site production concept into blocks. Right. I think a trap that we tend to fall into as developers is that, you know, we think of of like this is the database structure, right? And so content is this type of data and widgets are this type of data and your site logo and header are this type of data. And so in developer land, we're looking at that thinking, okay, these are separate pieces of data, they're separate types of data, and so they should be managed separately, right? And there's value in that because it makes it clearer, you know, like this is used in many places and this thing is used in one place. But what ends up happening with that is that you separate the visual context of that for the the end user. And that user is not concerned about my site header is a separate entity from my widgets, right? To them, it's just, this is my website. And so A huge thing now with this block editor is to unify your entire site management into blocks. Having them in the editor first allowed people to become familiar with that concept, right? The concept of blocks, how they work, how to manage them. I'm now making an attempt to expand it out so that you can go edit your widgets the same way that you would edit a page but be able to have sort of that full visual context that we sort of have right now in the thing that's called the customizer, but really trying to like unify the underlying technology, but all, you know more importantly, the interface and the experience for our users.
0: You mentioned earlier that you've been contributing to WordPress since 2008. Like we mentioned, it's an open source project. I'm really curious from your experience working in this for several years, What are some of the characteristics that you've identified for good open source projects?
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a hard question. I think everybody's going to have a very different answer to that. What I said earlier about it really being about the people and the process is very much what I believe in, right? I think a good example actually within the, the WordPress space is what we used for the editor before, which I think actually still kind of underpins, well, maybe not, I don't know. But the editor we previously used was MCE, right? And it wasn't just about the license compatibility, right? There are lots of things that were license compatible. But the big thing with MCE for a really, really long time was that we had a really great working relationship with them as a project, right? Same also goes for jQuery, which we do still use uh, in WordPress. And so we, we've just had really great working relationships because these are people who also care about open source, right, about copyleft licensing, about all those sort of things in the same way that the WordPress project does. And so we can, you know, work together much more easily, right, that we don't have sort of these baseline conflicts. It's almost like, like the way you make friends sometimes, right? it's like, you, you find that commonality, because you don't have to spend all your time explaining the basics of yourself to that person, right? And that's sort of the same thing with including other projects. And so to me, that's a lot of it is that, you know, are the maintainers communicative, right? Are they clear about their priorities, their goals for the project, right? So like, you know, as a technical consumer of open source, I really appreciate it when somebody is able to clearly say, you know what, this is not in scope or this does not align with the vision that I have for this project. And that doesn't upset me, right? It doesn't upset me that this person doesn't want to make their project do what I personally want it to do. That's something that I actually find uh, really powerful and something that makes me actually want to work with that person more. It's because here's a person who is able to clearly and politely, I am also looking at the way that they communicate, right? But clearly and politely say, you know, I have a vision for this and, and it doesn't fit within it and that's really important to me. And then also, you know, the thoughtfulness of the entire life cycle of contribution, right? So there's contributing code right the the patches welcome pull requests welcome whatever of the world but how do you think of the rest of your contributor base right so do you think about documentation? Do you think about translators? Do you think about designers? Do you think about people who help you organize community events? Like, how do you involve those people? How do you give them credit for being a part of the growth and the success of your project, right? And I think that's also another really high indicator to me, right, is, you know, what kind of care has been put into the experience of contributors, right? And, um, yeah, and just like what does that show about that project and what they think of their own sustainability and all of that as well.
0: Exactly. So you're mentioning it goes beyond just the code. You have to have good documentation, translators, involved designers, and also the community itself. So those are, I think, pretty good insights into the characteristics of open source projects. Before we finish, I just want to ask you about some of your work at Tenup. In particular, I saw you're director of the open source initiatives. Can you talk about some examples of what initiatives are? Sure.
1: So I've been at Tenup for almost 10 years. As a company, we just passed 10 years and I was the first full-time hire <laughs> at 10Up. So I've, I've been there for quite a long time and uh, my job has really grown with me and my interests. And that's something that you know, really keeps me there, right? Is that it's a job that I've made for myself and that there's a lot of value in that. So yeah, open source initiatives. So... I think when people ask me, you know, how do you become sponsored to work on open source, right? Like, how does a like for-profit entity decide that it wants to donate, you know, resources of whatever kind, time, money, whatever, to open source? And, and you know, the answer is, I mean, at a very basic level, we make money, right? Our profit comes on the backs of this free and open source software right? Freely available open source software. And it's not right, like fundamentally, it's just not right for us to benefit from that without giving back, right? Of course, there are going to be, you know, like your business reasons for doing that. Like, it ensures sustainability and the future of those platforms that you're building on. It gives your team like a deep, deep expertise. It is, you know, frankly, promotional, right? It is like that sales and marketing angle as well, right? The visibility that you have in the communities and the credentials that you have, right, outside of that. But yeah, so what I do for my job is I work on open source project mostly, where I guess, like the fancy way of talking about it, is that I work to identify and then strategize and implement various opportunities that there are for us as a company in open source. For us, frequently, because the vast majority of our work really is building sites on WordPress, this is a lot of WordPress plugins. One of the really interesting ones that we've been working on for a while now uh, is called Classify, which is a plugin that hooks up your WordPress site to like various cloud services to use AI machine learning to classify your content. So what I think is like super powerful about it is that it can take like all your image uploads and give you automatically generated alt text. It can read text out of it. So like it can OCR screenshots, right? and then help you insert that into your post content. It does all kinds of really cool stuff. Like I actually use it on my own site. Like I'm not just like shilling for it. It's that it's like a thing that I also use. Right. And it's just really exciting for me because we're solving something that can be really frustrating on a lot of fronts. Right. Is that you have people who upload their stuff into their media library and then there's no way to ever find it again, right? Like who has the time to like rename, like properly title every single thing that they upload to their media library and tag it and whatever, you know? Like people, especially today, it's just like you take endless photos, right? And you just upload them in batches up to your site. And so by having this sort of like automatically searchable, right, based on like what a computer sees in your picture is really cool. And then you know something that I really love about it is that it helps with accessibility, right? In that it generates this alt text, so that again you don't you don't end up with like an image of a sandwich or something, and you forgot to put in your alt text. Oh no, you know nobody has any idea what that what that image is, but rather the computer has helped you at least get a start right? With categorizing your stuff. So those are the sort of things where it's like, you know, we're solving a legitimate broader user need, but also something that we see repeatedly in our clients. That's where we really bridge that gap. And then sometimes because we're a team that is just kind of doing what I want to do, (laughs) we're a very small team, but you know, we're a team that's basically doing what I want to do. And so sometimes we get to pick up special projects. And so a special project that I picked up at the end of last year, which is public knowledge, so I can talk about it. But we did the backend editor experience for the White House because each new administration builds a new site, which is something that I didn't know about the U.S. government. But the Biden-Harris administration needed to put together their White House website and so I was asked if I would be willing to come in and really make the editor experience shine with that fancy new block editor. And so they have this just really amazing, visually driven, if I may say so myself, very nearly visually perfect one-to-one representation of their front end, and they can just edit it like that in the editor. It's like typing into the spaces where the text would go. And so that was really exciting for me to be able to have, you know, my little team be able to jump on this opportunity, right? It just, I got asked one week and the next week there we were working on it. So that's been really cool.
0: Wow, I didn't know that. That sounds great. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. One thing I also like about what you just mentioned is you get to work on what you want, what you're interested in, and you're also building the solutions that not only help your direct customers, but they also help the internet ecosystem as a whole, right? Because you're describing... In the Classify example, you're helping people with disabilities to understand what's going on on a website because they get automated text generated for their images. Yes. Well, Helen, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really nice chatting with you.
1: Yeah, of course. And same to you. I'm really glad that you reached out and asked me to join you.